Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. We're actually talking to some Australians on Monday. It's a quite scary environment. There are a lot of men who know a lot of stuff about this subject. The interviewees were all male. The Australian High Commissioner is a man who brought some people from the High Command, all men. And I thought, just ask the question. Don't be frightened. You know this stuff. Ask the question. Use your voice. And, and you have to just switch your confident brain on and go for it. Hello, and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. And you are in the right place if you're after inspiration, uplifting stories and practical advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. So if you're looking to get ahead or trying to figure out what's next for you, stay tuned. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss out when an episode lands. Absolutely. You have to be in the know. Now to this week's episode. Our guest this week is the incredibly inspiring Martha Lane Fox, one of the UK's most well-known and respected technology leaders and society shapers. She certainly is. In 1997, Martha was just 25 years old when she became co-founder of LastMinute.com, one of the first internet travel marketplaces in the world. This was in the days of the first dot-com boom, when creating internet-based businesses was still truly a pioneering thing. In 2003, after six years running last minute, Martha stepped down as CEO and took some time off to holiday in Morocco, where she had a near-fatal car crash. She broke 28 bones, had a stroke, and spent two years in hospital. Martha's story of her journey back to some degree of normalcy is truly incredible. And the chronic pain and injuries she lives with today would make you think she'd want to rest up and take it easy. But not Martha. Not Martha indeed. She's gone on to do so many incredible things. And she believes passionately that it's so important for female voices to be heard. Today, she sits on numerous boards, including Twitter, Chanel, and the Queen's Commonwealth Trust. She's also the founder and chair of a think tank called Dot Everyone, which promotes responsible technology for a fairer future. She's even a member of the House of Lords, the upper house of the UK Parliament. Yes, she's actually also known officially there as Baroness Lane Fox of Soho. Indeed. Now, in this episode, you'll hear what it's like to be a member of the House of Lords, particularly as a woman, how Martha's accident impacted her life, and what tactics she uses to cope and achieve all that she does, her advice on how you can speak up and be heard, and why she tries to raise the climate crisis in whatever forum she finds herself in. Without further ado, please enjoy this interview with the irrepressible Martha Lane Fox. 
Well, Martha Lane Fox, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. This has been a long time in the making, but I can't tell you how excited we are to be having this intercontinental conversation. You're in London, I presume, and uh, we're here in Sydney, and it's so great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much. We're excited. But for listeners who don't know who you are because perhaps they're not living in the UK, if you were to meet someone you didn't know, how would you describe to them what you do today? Do you know what? You have asked me one of the questions that makes me feel most anxious because I'm not someone that you can put in a box and I don't really have one job. I guess if I had to characterize what I do, I worked in the technology sector my whole working life and I now have used that as a springboard to think about the next wave of digitization in our society beyond kind of startups and building the economy through more digital-based companies. I'm now more interested in how it affects society, how we digitize government, how we digitize some of our big institutions. So that's a huge aspect of my work and I do that through a charity I started. But I also sit in the UK Parliament in the weird second chamber the House of Lords. And through that, I try and do work around some of the pressing issues of today, both in security and now more recently in the climate crisis. And you do wear so many hats. You know, you're on the multiple boards, including the board of Chanel and the board of Twitter. Is there a common thread with everything you've taken on in your portfolio today? I think it's kind of twofold. Firstly, I think I have to enjoy the things I'm doing. You know, I'm super lucky that after the early success of my business and then sort of career break we might come back to and I literally broke all the bones in my body I could rebuild my not only my physical self but also my working life and I was lucky enough to be in a position to pick things that I enjoyed doing so that's the first thing I always look and say is this something I care about something I'm interested in something that feels important to me and the second thing is can I be a strong female voice in an environment where perhaps they've been lacking before and so for example when I joined the House of Laws the opportunity to go onto committees to scrutinize the work of the government is a big part of the work that we do. And I joined the Joint Committee for National Security Strategy, which oversees our national security advisor. And surprise, surprise, the world of security and defense is not a place you have very many female voices, particularly female voices that understand a bit about technology. So that felt, again, like something I could contribute and add to. So something I enjoy, something I feel I can add a strong female voice to. But as I said, always with a kind of underpinning of can I bring some of my understanding of the way technology is shaping society, some of the ways I think that it is going to change the jobs we do and the way that we interact with our institutions, our government and so on. For anybody listening, they'd probably be going, oh my God, this is amazing, this this incredible portfolio. So I really want to bring you back to being sort of somebody who they can really relate to. So I want well, to maybe maybe it would reassure your listeners to know that I'm speaking to you pretty much in my pajamas, having done a hardcore physio session this morning, which I tried to start most days with, or I can't actually move about, and I'm looking a total mess. And I plan on spending quite a lot today on the floor with my three-year-old twins. So I'm lucky in that life may seem from the outside as though it's sort of a, this incredibly high-powered, ranging between all these things, but it also is very down to earth and based quite a lot on both quite extreme physical training to get my body back in shape and also extreme activity with two small people. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that will be very comforting. <laughs> and we will absolutely be diving into some of that detail. We will indeed. But, you know, if we take you back to your childhood, what do you remember about your childhood? Very happy childhood. I was very lucky in that my 
despite a divorce, both my parents were extremely present. My dad is an academic and worked a lot at home and the holidays. We spent a lot of time with him. So I have very happy memories of just mucking around either in London or in the countryside. I grew up between the two. You know, it was a very relaxed childhood, but always with a big emphasis on creativity and learning and curiosity. And I hope that that's what instilled in me some of my core values. So I have very happy memories of my childhood, somewhat eccentric. My dad was an entrepreneur, as was my mother. So we were often kind of in the throes of some entrepreneurial crisis, which is probably where I got bitten by the bug of entrepreneurialism. My dad self-published some of his books. And I remember stuffing envelopes full of books and sending the people over the country. My mum started a crisis line for people that were going to hurt their children. And she didn't think it was inappropriate to take her for the five, six, seven-year-old daughter to the center that she was starting listening to these really hardcore conversations. So it was varied and fun and happy, and I feel very lucky to have been given that broad basis of love and encouragement. Obviously, the thing that you are really known for, well, certainly the beginning of your career, is for really being a true internet pioneer. And, you know, I, I remember I, I was actually in the travel industry, and I think I was at the World Travel Mart in London in 2002 watching you speak on stage. And I think I remember that, I think. I was sitting there, you were a couple of years younger than me. And I was sitting there thinking, wow, this is incredible. And I was actually working at an internet travel company at the time, Zuji.com in Singapore. What I'm interested in is really how you found yourself in that spot at that time, because it was really an incredible time, wasn't it? It was a window of opportunity. You know, in some ways, it feels like a parallel lifetime because so much has changed since then, both in the landscape of the internet, clearly, and the UK, and and also just my own life. So it's, it does feel sometimes as though I'm kind of going through a door and there's this other landscape there. It was exciting because there was an energy in the people that had sort of begun to grasp the potential power of what the internet was going to do. And that was immensely energizing. And, you know, our company was growing very rapidly. I think by 2003, we had about 3,000 people across Europe. We bought a lot of companies with our IPO money. We maybe done about 15 acquisitions. You know, our stock value had gone up, down all over the place. But mm. fundamentally, the premise that people were going to buy things on the internet had been started to be proved right. And that was not a given. It sounds extraordinary now, but it really wasn't. So I feel immensely lucky to have had that experience. You know, it was such an outlying thing to have done. We started lastminute.com when I was 25, Brent was 28. And you know, we, I knew nothing. I remember it just being total chaos most of the time. Brent remembers it slightly more uh, organized, but I, I think it was complete chaos most of the time. It was a moment where I did feel as though things were going to very rapidly change. And remember, this was really pre-Google, pre-Facebook, pre-Twitter, anything else, pre-smartphone, all of these things. And the internet felt like it was going to be a different place. It felt like it was going to be a place of opportunity, entrepreneurialism. It wasn't going to be this sort of big platform-based, balkanized internet. It was going to be a small, distributed, new voices-based internet. And that was something that was, you know, as you say, new and different and really exciting. And in that time, the late 90s, Aside from the fact digital e-commerce companies were almost unheard of and having to explain to potential investors the merits of lastminute.com, you were also a woman. How did you find trying to be taken seriously at age 25 with people like potential investors? 
I think, you know, it was a real mixture. In some ways, being a young woman was one of the most extraordinary assets to our business. And I think I would be disingenuous now not to reflect on the fact that, you know, we attracted attention. I was unusual. Sometimes it was just deeply sexist attention in that this was Brent's idea, which he very generously served me right from the get-go. But he would be cut out of articles or pictures, you know, because he was a white man. And that was a bit less interesting than putting a young woman on the cover of whatever it might be. But there was still a kind of compelling energy brought to the fact that this was going to be something that looked and felt a bit different. So that was the kind of positive side. The negative side was, you know, it was complete opposite of that at many moments. So the travel industry, as you'll remember, Claire, was deeply sexist. If the tech business was bad, as in there were no women, and it was dominated by a type of skill that just generally over the last decade women hadn't gone into, as in software engineering, the travel industry was awful. And I really remember being as shocked by going to these big travel conferences where the power dynamic was deeply disturbing. You'd have lots of sort of young, either people who worked in the service business, whether it was air stewardesses or people who worked in call centers or people who worked in hotels, and then management who generally were men. And the dynamic in the conferences seemed to be that everyone would be very drunk and men would just be preying on the younger women. The industry was really, really screwed up. I hated it. So on some levels, it was not easy to be across those two industries where women in senior positions were unusual. So I really would be being kind of rewriting history if I didn't say it gave the business a boost in some ways that I was an unusual face. It came at some personal cost, to be honest, and it wasn't easy. And I had to be better than the men. And I had to prove that I wasn't just a young blonde bimbo who didn't know anything, that I was actually a serious person that knew my business and and so on. For sure. And I'm curious, you know, from the perspective you have today, do you think it's got better or easier for women in tech in particular? Or is it a worse scenario now? I just don't know. And I'm not dodging that question. This is obviously something I think about a lot. A couple of things. I think that there is more conversation about what it means to be a woman in tech, the importance of having diverse voices, not just women, but different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds and so on than there have ever been. And that is a positive But whether that is really being translated into change, I am very skeptical about. You know, obviously, I try and talk to or help any young woman that reaches out to me. And I hear some really shocking stories sometimes. There was a young woman I was helping with a presentation the other day, and she'd done a really brilliant presentation about a project that she was trying to get funding for. And she rang me after the presentation, and she told me that there'd been one question. No, no, sorry, even worse. The only comment at the end of the presentation from this team of VCs had been, you've got a really lovely voice. Oh, you're uh, really? <laughs> no. So this is 2018 that was. And that could have been a question that I was asked back in the early days. I was asked in our only investor presentation, what happens if she gets pregnant? Brent was asked that question. So in some ways, it doesn't feel like the dial's moved at all. And when I look at the dynamics of the sector, as in the things that are going to be important, I believe, over the next 10, 15 years are going to be blockchain-based technologies, AI, and cyber technologies, Deep machine learning, deep tech, if you like, which isn't that women can't do it or don't want to do it, but just for lots of complicated cultural and systemic reasons, they're not going into those bits of the tech sector. If those are the bits that are going to be most valuable, it's like we're going back to square one again. Absolutely. It's just so future society is so dependent on getting this right, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Martha, changing subjects really completely and utterly. After last minute, you left, I think, in 2003, and you went off on holiday to Morocco, I believe, for a sort of starting the new chapter of your life. And you were 
involved in a terrible car accident where I think you broke lots of bones and even had a had a stroke. It sounds as if that that accident has really severely impacted you as you've gone forward in your in your life. How has that experience changed life, your outlook, how you think? I imagine it has just changed everything. Yeah, it's hard to talk about, not because I'm not wanting to, but it's so deep, it's kind yeah. of hard to put it into sound bites, to be honest. Spent two years in hospital, I broke 28 bones, I had a stroke, I had to rebuild everything. And it's so fundamental that it's hard to be sort of uh, objective about yourself in that way. For me, and this is very personal, this stuff is always personal, it's a bit like grief, I would imagine, that you go on your own deeply personal journey and some of it's people will take things that are relevant to them and some is only ever going to be an individual. But for me, I don't think it changed my fundamental outlook on the world. And thank, I didn't do some sort of, oh my God, I must change my whole life and now I want to be this person. If, I hope it reinforced what I always thought was important, which is my friends, my network of support, my family, and wanting to contribute and do something meaningful in the world. In a way, I don't mean to sound churlish, I know it was an extraordinary experience and I am so lucky to have had it. But in a way, last minute was this strange experience in my life. You know, I didn't wake up and want to be a tech entrepreneur. I'd always thought I'd do something more public service based. And I guess the accident gave me the opportunity to reassess my working life and go a bit more back into that. But in terms of the more substantive stuff about what it makes you to be a human being, I hope it just doubled down on my belief that in the end, you're only as good as the way you treat people around you. And you know, in those moments of extremists, that's what really tests that. And I genuinely, not a day goes by when I don't think about my friends who didn't let me be alone in that hospital room once for two years and continue to be such an amazing support network. My mum, my now husband, Chris, all of these people who quite honestly, you know, dragged me out from the deep. To answer your question about the now, it's like another job. That's probably the best way to explain it. It just it takes up a bit of your brain all the time. And it's very hard to explain that to someone who hasn't got some kind of chronic thing that they're managing because it can make you irritable at moments. It can make you suddenly unable to be how you want to be. It can take time and attention in a way that takes it away from something else. And that's the hardest thing, I think. So don't want to go into too much physical detail for your listeners. I'm sure they can be spared that. But, you know, I walk with a stick outside. I do physio every day. I manage a lot of pain. I'm pretty incontinent. I have random things that then happen because of all of the above. That just takes time and energy. And I don't want people to see it necessarily every day. I want to hide it. Mm. And so that's the way I choose to be in my life. But it, it is like another job. Yeah, gosh, I can't imagine how you cope with that every day. But you must have found some things, sort of mindset tools and things like that that perhaps have helped you cope is there anything that you can think to that has really helped you apart from obviously all the the social support and the the support of your family that you have around you I'm a very goal-driven person and always have been, you know, and that's at a micro level and a macro level. So I always try and have in my head the three or four things I'm trying to do over, it might be over today or it might be over the next six months or it might be by the end of the year. Yeah, you know, that can be very specific to me, like I've just moved house and bought another house and all that kind of stuff. It can be specific to my work. So these are the things I want to try and get done. Or it can be some more macro, like, okay, over the next five years, I want to try and 
have built my voice around this issue. So I guess getting from a position of not having sat upright for six months to then having to learn to walk again, I found it like you just have to drive yourself through really specific goals and try and keep that motivation. So I find that very helpful in how I get stuff done. But then a bit alongside that, there's no special magic. I mean it very, very sincerely when I said that without a network of maybe 30 or 40 friends and my family, there is no question in my mind I would either be in a wheelchair or dead Mm -hmm. because that energy that they brought to me every day was quite astonishing. Yeah, how, how incredible. You had two years in hospital. What did you do when you decided you were ready to not just be a recovering sort of patient from an accident, but actually get back into some form of work. What was your first foray? Well, first foray was Lucky Voice, which I also started planning before the accident. It's a venture that I wanted to start just for fun on the side. It's a We have now 12 venues around the world. They're karaoke bars. You hire a private room and you sing with your friends. We launched the first one, I think, the year after I got out of hospital, and we've just opened another one in central London. So that was fun, but I, I wasn't running it. I was just an investor and a founder. I started thinking about what I was going to do, and I started a, my own small charitable foundation because that was something that was in my control, and I could work as much or as little as I wanted. And I so I did that, and then I had an opportunity to join the board of Channel 4, which is a broadcasting company here in the UK. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm ready to do that. I'm still walking on two sticks. I was still pretty broken, but actually I was encouraged to go for it. And it was great because then I could see that I could contribute something again in a more formal business environment. And while being on boards is a funny kind of experience, it's also a way of contributing and keeping up skills and so on. So that was my next thing. And boy, have you gone on to contribute since Channel 4 days. You were digital champion for the UK government for a number of years and I think helped pioneer all of the digital services of gov.uk, is that right? And then that also presumably was one key reason of you ultimately becoming and being raised to become a peer in the House of Lords, as you mentioned, as the Baroness of Soho. But what's it like being a member of the House of Lords? It's a strange place. I have mixed feelings about it. You know, in many ways it works, but not because of the way it's constructed, if you see what I mean. It's sort of like one of those strange bits of the UK system that despite everything, does a good job as opposed to because of everything. As with any constituent group of 600 plus people, there are some people that I don't think should be there. And there are some extraordinary people that work immensely hard and do incredible things. The role of a second chamber, I am a fully paid up believer that we need one and it should be independent. And I I, I have less issues with the fact it's not elected because I think it does a different job. We are only ever recommending things to the government. So legislation comes to the House of Lords, we can recommend amendments, which the Commons, who has primacy, can reject. So that's a whole bunch of work that is kind of important. But then the committee work alongside it is most active. And I enjoyed the most in the setting on the National Security Strategy Committee. So we scrutinise the National Security Advisor. It's a joint committee with House of Commons. That's interesting work and providing a level of expertise that is helpful. So it's a mixed bag. It's a funny place. It's quite entrepreneurial if you're a crossbencher like me because you're not told what to do by a party line. And, you know, frankly, youngish women who look like me with a pink streak in their hair and know a bit about technology are not the norm. <laughs> so um, I think I'd probably baffled a few people there, but I have a massive amount of respect for a number of the peers and they do, by and large, a pretty good job at keeping the government in check. 
And on the the battles that I'm loving, the pink streak in the hair in the House of Lords, awesome. You know, you've talked a bit about how important it is to sort of use your voice in such a traditional environment and pretty much male dominated. How do you go about being heard? That's something I've had to battle with my whole life. I wish I had a magic potion that I could give to people that ask me that question, especially young women who are trying to find your voice. It's not easy. I've been in places where there have not been very many women my whole working life. I mean, I'm not sure there are very many women that have been in places where there are only women in their whole working life. So perhaps that doesn't make me that unusual. And all I can say is it doesn't necessarily get easier. You have to just have confidence in what you have to say and not ever feel like you don't have the right to say it. It sounds a bit trite, but I go back to it every day. Even just this is a silly example, but we had a committee meeting just the day before yesterday and we were doing a bit of a review of Huawei, the Chinese telecoms provider, because there's been a bit of a um, controversy about whether or not they should be providing some of our infrastructure in the future. We're actually talking to some Australians on Monday. Mm. And, you know, it's a quite scary environment. There are a lot of men who know a lot of stuff about this subject. The interviewees were all male. The Australian High Commissioner is a man who brought some people from the High Command, all men. And I thought, just ask the question. Don't be frightened. You know this stuff. Ask the question. Use your voice. And and you have to just switch your confident brain on and go for it. Obviously, it doesn't help if you don't know your subject. So there is no shortcut to reading, learning, being good at what you do. And that comes from hard work and perseverance. So marry those two things together and just always feel like you have as equal rights to be in the room. And I guess it sounds like you have a little internal battle with the voice in your head saying, no, don't ask the question. They'll judge me. And then you get the upper hand eventually with the other voice going, ask the question. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's right. And sometimes I do just actually visualize that switch in my head going off to on. And I sometimes think that's quite helpful. Like, okay, I'm going for it now. But it's hard. And I, I really do feel for and empathize with any women of any age who are feeling this, I shouldn't be here in imposter syndrome and, and men as well. It's kind of a bit like it's the human condition, but just rest assured that even when it looks like people who may seem relatively successful are coming across as confident, it still is a bit of a trick. I have been trying to learn how to box because it's really good for my balance and all of the things that I find challenging. Don't laugh. It's pretty funny. I agree. And my boxing teacher is epic. She's called Leslie. She was an European boxing champion. Obviously, also doubly hilarious that she's teaching a Muppet like me. But she just says she puts her game face on. And I think about that a lot now. I'm like, just put your game face on. What is it you want to present to the other person and get that face on and just, it's a bit of an act. And when you start acting, it is kind of fake it till you make it, but not without the substance of knowing what you're doing, if you see what I mean. So I think it's yeah. it's just about finding that balance. And it's a really fine line, isn't it, when the, with all of that? Because it's like you, you still want to be authentic and genuine, but I totally hear you and I think that is right. You sort of put that kind of face on, you role play for that scenario. Yes, exactly a bit, exactly. And Martha, you know, thinking about advice, particularly when you were a young woman leading lastminute.com, can you think back, what was the best piece of advice you think you received? I mean, I think in a way, my dad has always been my best, both critic and supporter. I still often run by things by him and, you know, just his brain is so extraordinary. When I send him things I've written or sometimes speeches before I make them, he always does the same thing. He always just takes out the apologizing and says, get to the point. 
it sounds like a basic piece of advice, but he's right. And I find myself now saying it to the young women or women that I try and help. You know, often I'll say, you know, I don't know anything but, or I'm sure this might be wrong, but, or yeah. you probably got this covered, but yeah. I think, no, screw that. And I try and remind myself of what, what Robin would say, which is just, you know, just get on with the point. Don't waste time by pretending or not pretending or feeling disingenuous, all that stuff. I think that's just really super good advice. Cut the first bit of your sentence and then go straight for the jugular, as he always says. One of the other ventures close to your heart is your think tank, Dot Everyone, and that describes itself as championing responsible technology for a fairer future. What would be just one briefly, a key example of how you want to see things change for the better in future? Yeah, this is so important. Everyone is building a movement for responsible technology. We are really focused on a couple of things. Firstly, what does that look like? So we built a toolkit that technology companies or any company can use to check off whether or not the technology they're building is responsible. And that is a whole bunch of different stuff. It's about really setting your values out at the beginning of your projects. It's about making sure that you think carefully about what the intended consequences of this product are, as well as the unintended consequences, that your team is diverse, that you are not strengthening existing inequalities, and so on and so on. But we also want to show what good looks like. So we work a lot, especially in the public sector, to build services that are based from a more inclusive and responsible starting point done some work in end of life care and we're doing some work now in the care sector itself so we're both building things but also helping to build the tools to help other people build better things as well as well as obviously trying to use my voice and our team's voice to keep up just the importance of what responsibility means in our sector so that's the kind of specifics of everyone but the other bit i'm just really keen to keep putting at the heart of everything we talk about is the climate crisis you know i i just feel somewhat baffled that we are not all taking Extinction Rebellion's lead and demanding more of all of our leaders. And I would put myself in that bracket. Yeah, it's sort of like we can't leave it up to just the leaders anymore. As Greta Thunberg has shown, it's, we've all got to speak and act, haven't we? Well, I just think we've all got to put it in everything we do. Try to just raise the issue in every place I am, whether that's the board of Chanel board of Twitter, in the Security Strategy Committee, just to keep coming back to, are we sure that when we look back in 10 years' time, we're going to be on the right side of history? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to change tax a little bit. I'm going to come back to young women. What would your advice be to, to young women when it comes to thinking about their career? I think twofold. I think, firstly, you don't have to be a technologist to be in technology. I mean, look at me. I studied ancient history. I was a consultant. I you know, had a very strange route into starting an internet company. But everything we are going to do over the next decades is going to be based around digital or digitization or technology. So whatever you're planning on doing, I would just say find your strength about tech and understand it. Don't be shy of it. You don't have to be a coder and you don't have to work in the sector, but you will always be more valuable in the jobs market if you show a certain robustness and resilience and curiosity about technology. And I just think that cannot be underestimated. So not only do we need more women in the sector, but we also need more women who just are comfortable in asking the questions and feeling as though it is part of the world that we are living in. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is, back to what we were saying, when I think about young women now, you know, I have had... 
a funny kind of career because of the accident. But generally, I think people of my age, kind of middle age now, are going to have, I think it's just between 10 and 11 jobs in their lifetime. Whereas if you're 21, you're more likely going to have 22 different moves in your lifetime. The world of work has shifted so dramatically. You might be doing something entrepreneurial alongside working in a full-time job. You might then move to do something in a completely different sector. You might do something in public service, then go back into private. Those silos are changing and shifting. And my strong advice is just to build your resilience however you can, not to get too pigeonholed, to keep being bold in learning, to see your career as a lifelong learning journey, not to think it's going to be finished when you get that next role because it's not. And I think that young women that can show that they are not frightened of change, that they are adaptable and that they are constantly trying to improve what they know and use it will be the women that are going to be the most employable and successful. Great advice. Well, Martha, thank you so much for your time. We've really loved our conversation with you and thank you for being so honest and open. We wish you all the best in all of the ventures that you're working on and we're extremely excited that you are there at the helm of all of these important causes. So If our listeners wanted to find out more about you, how would they do that? The best place is Twitter. I'm at Martha Lane Fox um, or .everyone.org.uk is our think tank that started championing responsible technology and there's lots of the work on there. Or if they really want to be bored by Martha Lane Fox, you can go to my own website, MarthaLaneFox.com, where I publish stuff I've written and there's a bit about me. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank Thank you very much. Great, Great to talk to you. Thank you, Martha. Gosh, that really was one of my favourite interviews. Yeah, I know. I think we both felt really inspired by how Martha has found her voice and how she has the courage to speak out about things she feels passionately about and that she feels are so important for society. Yeah, totally inspiring. I thought it was particularly liberating, actually, to hear that even she feels intimidated sometimes and has to find her game face. Well, yeah, I loved the mental image she painted of literally how she pictures seeing a switch in her mind that she flicks on when she has to be brave and speak out. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Watch out for our next episode, which is a how-to episode. And this episode is inspired by our recent competition winner, Sophia, from Washington, D.C. Hi, Sophia. And she requested that we do an episode on how to manage office politics. Now, that's a good one. It's not easy, is it? No, it's not. But we will have some tips and tools that will help you navigate that scenario. See you then. Ciao for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.